This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 10, Episode 19, Arson Profiler, talking with Ed Nordskog. Several recent arson cases involving wildfires in Northern California have brought the subject of arson back into focus. We saw an uptick in arson arrest in the Golden State in 2020 to 120 from 70 in 2019. And those statistics come from CAL FIRE. With us today, to put the wildfire arson issue in perspective, is veteran investigator Ed Nordskog. After a 21-year career with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, Ed continues to use his expertise as a consultant. He's investigated 2,100 arson cases, handled 600 hazardous devices bomb calls, and interviewed more than 320 suspects for arson, including 25 serial arsonists. He's been involved in 48 serial arson investigations, and he's also authored six books on the subject. Welcome to the show, Ed. Good afternoon, Jim. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Ed, with your vast experience in the field, tell us what makes an arsonist tick? Um, everybody always asks that question, and then the next thing they want to do is get into the mind of an arsonist. And I said, uh, I would say if you really knew it was in their mind, that's the last place you'd want to be was in their mind. It's pretty <laughs> dark and cloudy. First, we have to we have to talk about arson in two different ways. One, there's the standard one-and-done arsonist, and that's the bulk of people who set fires purposely only do it once in their life. They do it for insurance fraud. They do it because they're angry at somebody. They do it to cover up another crime. Those are We make a lot of arrests in those cases in law enforcement and the fire service, but those aren't the ones that pique our interest. The ones that pique our interest is, I think, the subject you want to talk about is a serial arsonist. Mm-hmm. That means somebody with repetitive behavior around fires. What makes them tick, the most common reason why they do it is after I've reviewed 1,200 serial arson cases in my career. I have keep statistics and and have looked at 1,200 serial arsonists. Virtually all of them have a degree of anger and frustration in them. Those are the two main reasons why they seem to be doing it. The Hollywood version is that it's an excitement, thrill crime with sexual overtones. It usually is not. It's more somebody upset angry and frustrated. Now, you had profiled in one of your books, you'd profiled two individuals. One was Henderson, the other was Howe or Huff, however you pronounce that last name. But in both cases, you were able to document multiple dozens and dozens of fires that these two men were able to set off. Could you talk a little bit about those two cases? Yeah, sure. Henderson is a guy from Lake County in California, Northern California, sort of North Central California. And if you know anything about Lake County and the surrounding areas, there seems to be a lot of serial arsonists that live there. And there's reasons for it. It's, it's a depressed county. There's a, a, a large percentage of people using methamphetamines, and all those things are factors. And it's a very dry and rugged county. And Henderson was setting fires in that area. His case his current case, or the most recent case, was in 
2006-2007 time frame, and he was a suspect in about 30 fires in the rural area around in Lake County, California. His case is going to be compared to the next guy we'll talk about, Jim Huff, because they're both white males. They're both older than the typical age someone would expect for arson activity. They're in their 50s and 60s. So people would say, well, why are these guys lighting fires? My answer is they've been lighting fires for 30 or 40 years. They just haven't gotten caught that we know of up to that point. Serial arsonists didn't just start yesterday. They've been doing it most of their life. They just get away with it for a long, long time in some cases. Well, we'll start with Henderson. His case, he, he is what we would refer to as a lifetime serial arsonist. And if you, if you do read my book, the, that particular story is in my second book, and it's called Fire Raisers, Freaks, and Fiends. I do like alliteration uh, a bit. <laughs> Henderson is a guy who started lighting fires in the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. This latest thing that he's incarcerated, and he's still incarcerated for it, happened in 2007. So that's 50 years of fire setting in there. And he has at least four arson convictions that I'm aware of. I don't know how many arrests, but I know four arson convictions, and at least a couple of those were for series of fires. And and he lived in multiple states. He is sort of your, I would say, the most common version of a serial arsonist. Somebody down on their luck, unskilled laborer, held mostly menial jobs the bulk of his life. The last year that he was out of jail, he wandered the country. So he got fired from his job mm-hmm. at an RV. Uh, he was at, working at an RV dealership in Lake County, and he got fired for being a bad employee. And he promptly came back a few days later and set two fires in the RV dealership. Wandered away, and then he spent the next year or so sort of living, not a homeless existence, but basically out of a vehicle. Yes. Collecting cans to recycle. And during his travels, during the day, he would set fires. He didn't do it every day. Mm-hmm. He didn't even do it every week. But he did it enough that he set about 30 fires in a year. And always in the summer, in very dry and dangerous conditions. And that's what makes these guys so, so dangerous. If you were to see him, he just looks like some sort of down-on-your-luck person. Mm-hmm. And most people would have some sympathy for a guy like that. In reality, he's he's setting fires in the driest areas of the state in the driest time of the year in, in the afternoons. Most of his fires were in the late afternoon, which is the worst time of the day for a catastrophic fire. And he has no ability to stop his fires once he starts them. He has no ability to aim them. So any fire he sets could conceivably burn the county down or you know, a town. What he was setting on fire mostly was vacant buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody was in danger of, at that immediate building, but of course the fire could just go further than that building. And so he was burning old cabins and old resorts and things like that. Then he moved to sort of the Central Valley part of the state, and he actually was observed by a highway patrol officer burning down a, a fruit stand on the side of the roadway. And his answer for that when he got caught was he was just upset that there wasn't enough he was collecting cans for recycling. There wasn't enough cans mm-hmm. to make it worth his time, so he got angry. And so there, therein lies that reason that I talked about a few minutes ago, the anger. Just the littlest things, the frustration or anger, will set these guys off, and they light a fire. Now, Ed, did you have an opportunity to interview him, to talk with him? I did not. I, his case was adjudicated, and that case was provided to me by a friend who was an investigator on the case. I see investigator named Bryce Trask. And so 
on that case and the next one, I've known the investigators that actually handled the case and I've spoken to them about it. Trying to get various profiles on, on their offender and what they knew about the person's background. Now, so you, were, not- you, were quoted, you were quoted recently as saying that these wildland arsonists can burn down a whole town in, in a matter of an hour. And we've seen with the wildfires that we've seen in Northern California over the last couple of years, we have seen small towns like Paradise, for instance, completely burnt to the ground. It, we were discussing before we came on the air the concept of a weapon of mass destruction where this arsonist has within his or her power, and it's usually men, so his power, has within his power the ability to actually burn down a city or burn down a couple of cities or burn down half the county. Why are we not taking this threat as seriously as other weapons of mass destruction that, you know, that, that we're, we're familiar with? Well, that, that is the million-dollar question, and I've been frustrated throughout my career with questions like that, most serial arsonists, when they set their fires, the overwhelming majority of their fires are not large and they're not catastrophic. Mm-hmm. If it's in an urban setting, say the city of San Francisco, which will always have serial arsonists, it does, it certainly does, the targets are fairly mundane things. Uh, the most common target in California to be burnt is a trash uh, dumpster, yes. followed by a palm tree and maybe a sofa in an alley, and for some reason, plastic porta potties seem to be a favorite subject <laughs> to be burned. But most people will chuckle at that and laugh, not be too excited, and when you catch somebody, that person will literally be out of jail within a half, half hour. The, the authorities, the, the prosecutors, don't get too excited by a person like that, but that might be that person's 50th fire. One of his fires is going to get big. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of mathematics. And that's how that's that is what we do in our business. And I do blame fire chiefs and, and other public officials for not paying attention to little fires, because the majority of serial arsonist fires are, are small. They're actually quite solvable cases. If we focus on them, on any one person, on any one series of events, modern law enforcement catches them mm-hmm. very quickly. Now, Ed, earlier you, we were talking about fascination with fire and. Boys, young boys, have always had a fascination with fire. And you had mentioned something that if they're still, if a young boy is still doing it by the time they're 12, that's a bad sign. Could you give us a sense of that profile? Why is it that boys or men are more apt to, to be arsonist? And what is, the, what is the, the cutoff point or the cutoff age, if you will, where they... What, if you're still an arsonist by the time you're 12, you might be an arsonist by the time you're 92. Right. My work and my studies and that of hundreds of my colleagues have, have found out that forever our systems have classified anybody under the 18 as a juvenile fire setter. Mm-hmm. Gave it a nice little name. We'll call him an arsonist. Call him a juvenile fire setter. And that could be a 17-year-old gang member. That could be a 6-year-old little girl. It could be anybody. They're all classified under the same thing. But they're not all alike. In the curiosity phase of fire setting, if you really study, there's very few people that are experts on this, but I, but I know a couple. The curiosity phase of fire setting usually ends at about age eight. That's about as much as we're going to give them, mm-hmm. given all their mental health issues are, are stable, that there's not some special, special needs issues there. That changes the dynamics quite a bit if they're a special needs child. 
So by age eight, we can maybe say, yeah, that's probably a curiosity fire. After that, it's no longer a curiosity. And then from older than age eight is usually truant fires, which means kids goofing around, doing vandalism-type fires. We'll prosecute those. We don't get too excited about those things. The ones we're looking for are, are the ones that are habitual fire setters doing it by themselves. Mm-hmm. as opposed to in a group of kids doing some pranks or vandals. And the, the habitual fire setter is these people that have these disordered coping problems. And I don't want to get too wonky here, but that just means that they have no way of dealing with things other than through fire. Hmm. And that is a huge problem. And that be, those people become your lifetime serial arsonists. When their life is down, when they're in stress, when they drink too much, they use too much dope, they go to fire setting as their coping mechanism. That's called the disorder coping arsonist. That's what most of your serial arsonists end up being. And that's in males or females. It's just much more common in males. They're lifetime offenders. They will be, if they're doing that at age 14 or 16, they'll be doing it at age 84. Every time their life goes sideways. And that's important to note because they don't do it every day. They can go weeks, months, even years without doing it. It's just when their life starts to go a little bit sideways on them. And you see, you'll see these offenders, and we've tracked some of these guys who, and women who've set fires. They stop for 10 years. They set a bunch more fires. They stop for 20 years. They set a bunch more fires into their 80s. That's their, that's their coping mechanism. So, yeah, it's, it's a fascination. It's not sexual. Most, in almost no cases is it sexual. It has more to do with coping with stress and anger. Mm-hmm. Of course, here in Northern California, we've had three celebrated cases this summer, one of which, and I, I know you're familiar with all three of them, but one of them was a, a professor from Sonoma State University, 47 years old. His name is Gary Maynard, and he is a professor of criminology. He was observed setting fires in Lassen National Forest and the national, the national Park up in around uh, Mount Lassen. And he was, he was out observed setting a couple of these fires by the Forest Service Rangers, subsequently arrested. And this is a man who actually has a PhD. He has a PhD from Stony Brook University in, uh, in New York. Similar to some of the profiles that you mentioned earlier, he also was living out of his car, even though he was a professor. He was living out of his car. He was itinerant. He was driving around Northern California. He was staying in contact with some of his students. He was talking to them about arson, subsequently moved. And his, his specialty as a both a criminologist and a sociologist was uh, social deviancy. And in particular, he was focused on Jim Jones of the Jonestown massacre where 800 people committed suicide. So, you know, I mean, here you had a highly educated professional because he was either homeless, he had some issues with his landlord, his father was ill. So there, there were personal issues, I guess, that were getting out of control in his life. His life was coming unglued. So he, he turned to arson. Is, is that a fairly typical profile? Or is, is he kind of off the charts given his, given his education and training? That's actually quite typical. He stands out, of course, because of his higher learning and his degrees. He has, like you said, he has a PhD, and he also has, if I, if I read right, at least three and maybe more master's degrees. Yes. He spent his entire adult life in the education system. 
but that doesn't make him immune from stress and dealing with stress or mental health issues. I don't know. I, I just know what the media is reporting on the case. I, I, unless I'm asked by a police agency to get involved in the case, I, I, it's my policy to stay out of them commenting too much on them because I don't want to mess with their investigation. If they ask me, I, I'll help them. But in his case, there's I've read quite a bit uh, about it. And when people are serial arsonists, it's not much of a surprise to the people that know them. It really isn't. They may not say, oh, he's an arsonist. They just know that the behavior is really, really odd for some time prior to them being arrested for arson. And that, that, is, that holds true amongst all these serial arsonists. They're, they're well known by people of having mental difficulties, maybe quite a bit of substance abuse issues, legal and illegal. And those are the big factors in modern America, that we have many more serial arsonists than we did 50 years ago because we didn't have methamphetamines 50 years ago, which is the scourge of America. And right behind it is, is opiate abuse through legal medicines. And those two things together create uh, odd behavior mm-hmm. and erratic behavior and declining mental health and things like that. And we can tell from this, this particular professor, Maynard, I believe his name is, he was, there are signs that he was had declining mental health issues for at least a year prior to this. Yes. To the point, um, you know, some unprofessional behavior. He's talking to students about his personal life. That's, that's unprofessional on its face. That's a, that's a big red flag. Mm-hmm. I believe he lost his job or quit his job. So that's another red flag. There's, some, there's talk of, of suicide, suicidal ideation. Extraordinarily common amongst serial arsonists is uh, thoughts and acts of suicide. So all those things... I don't think that the people that know him, I think I don't think that they would be overly surprised by his arrest. Mm-hmm. Everybody else has a preconceived notion of what a serial arsonist is, and they can't see an educated person as a serial arsonist. I'm not surprised by it one bit. Mm-hmm. I have a chapter in one of my books specifically about guys like him, and it's called The Brainiac Arsonist. And everybody in that chapter is a university professor, a rocket scientist, multi-millionaire, people with super high IQs. Amazing. They're all serial arsonists. It just has to do with the stress in their life, chemicals and, and mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Ed, your background is somewhat unique in that you're both an arson profiler as well as an arson investigator. Speak to me about that, the fact that you're able to bring these two disciplines together. And then also, why don't we discuss the testimony that you give as a special witness, and you've done that kind of testimony around the country? Yes. An arson profilers, it's not a really great word. Nobody really likes the word profiling anymore. Yes. We call it something different, but I'll use it right now just because that's what people understand. It's your under, Profiling is looking at the behavior of people. And in the old days, maybe it was done wrong at a few times, quite a few times, where they, they said, this person fits the profile. We don't use that terminology anymore. That's non, non-scientific, and everybody fits the profile of certain things. So it's, it's not very helpful. What we look at, what I look at, is the actual crime scene actions of an individual. I have the benefit over, uh, an advantage over most profilers. Most profilers are not investigators. They don't go to crime scenes. I do. I I spent 35 years doing that and going to thousands of crime scenes. And so I'm looking at, I don't need someone to tell me what the behavior is. I'm seeing it. I'm I'm, I'm seeing what that person, the suspect did at the scene. That helps me develop uh, a profile. So in California, we always start out, well, we have 44 million suspects because that's how many people are in this state. 
I know I didn't do it, and I'm pretty sure my partner didn't do it, so we can knock those two people out. And all we do with profiling is get that 44 million persons down to a reasonable number to work with. If it's a sophisticated arson using sophisticated ignition uh, techniques, maybe a device of some sort, well, that number gets down to a really small number really fast. And who would do this? Who could do this? Who has the ability to do this crime? And so we can get our numbers down to workable things. And so by being an arson investigator, I have the advantage because not only do I get to go do the scene, I get to follow the lead and I get to actually locate and find an offender. And then comes the bonus. The bonus is me sitting in a room with them at some point, just when they're fresh off the street, which is the only time you're going to get something honest out of these people, is when they're fresh off the street. And I talk about this whole situation in one of my books. But that is where you'll get them when they're tired, exhausted, worn out, and as open as they're ever going to be in their life. And maybe you'll get some truth out of them then. Because by the time they get in our custody facilities and our, and our court systems, they become isolated by psychiatrists and lawyers, and then they're told what to say and how to say it and things like that. They become programmed. Mm -hmm. I have the benefit of being not only a profiler, but then sitting in a small room and talking to this arsonist for hours. When I do a serious arson investigation, I cannot wait to, to get to that point where I'm sitting in a room with them. Because mm -hmm. I'll sit there for three days if that's what it takes to get all the answers out of this person. And once they start talking, and many of them do, they don't stop. They just keep going and going. They tell you everything they did their whole life sometimes. So I wait for that moment, and I work towards that moment. That's amazing. Ed, give us also a sense of the actual arson site investigation, because... That's always fascinated me that, you know, a pile of burnt out rubble, you go in there as an investigator, what do you look for? What, what are you, what are the telltale signs that this fire was deliberately set? How do you distinguish an arson site from a regular common or garden fire site? That question is the hardest part of, of fire scene investigation. That's yes. why it's a difficult thing to do. It's, you have to understand the science of fire. You have to understand fire dynamics. You have to understand how heat transfers through things. And you're taking cops and firemen, firefighters, and teaching them this heavy, heavy-duty science. It's actually quite, quite difficult. And a lot of guys don't like doing that kind of work because it's always assumed, well, if you're a firefighter for 20 years and you're going to be a really good fire investigator, that's like saying you drove a car for 20 years and now you want to change the transmission. <laughs> Most people cannot do that. Right. If you drove the car, doesn't mean you know how to fix the carburetor or, or to change the transmission. So arson is the same way. It's super technical investigation. It would take hours to talk about it. But I'll talk about the wildland ones, since that's what I think you're really referring to. The wildland ones are actually easier, in most cases, to find out roughly where the fire starts. Really? Because all you need to do is go up in a helicopter mm -hmm. or maybe up on a hilltop and overlook the fire scene. And if there's a wind, which there usually is, it's pushing the fire away from where it started. Mm -hmm. So this will sound callous, but arson investigators could care less how big a fire gets. Mm -hmm. we, we, that's not our focus is. And if it goes, if it starts out as an accident for some reason, and it burns for five days and kills 20 people, it's still an accident. It's tragic, but it's still an accident. All we're concerned about is where did it start and how did it start? So we, as an investigator, have to kind of ignore all the carnage downrange. 
All we're worried about is that very pinpoint area where it started. So the wind does our work for us. Uh, we have that big black mark on, in a green forest, and where it's the smallest and narrowest is where the fire started. Uh-huh. And then the fire, you know, as the wind pushes, it gets bigger and wider. So we go back to that. And then once we get to that area of origin, it, the hard work starts. And every arson investigator gets dirty, filthy, cut up, uh, exhausted, bit by bees, because you're crawling on your hands and knees with magnifying glasses mm. and metal detectors looking for the things the size of a match head wow. in a burned-out area. And it's not easy mm-hmm. because our visual inspection, we can get within maybe 50 feet of where the fire started. That's where we can get to. Then we have to grid that entire area off. It might be 50 feet by 50 feet, so that's... 50 grid squares and go through every one of those the same way until we find out something that's there that doesn't belong there. Uh-huh. And it could be a small piece of carbon from a vehicle the size of a match head. could be a match head. They survive fires. They just are nearly impossible to find sometimes. And, of course, if we have an arson where the, the, the suspect just used the lighter and took it away from them, took it away, now we have nothing to look for except footprints and tire prints, tire impressions. So it's an extraordinarily difficult forensic process. Well, Ed, in the remaining few minutes left in the podcast, are there any closing thoughts you have for our listeners? And most importantly, where can our listeners get your books? You've written six books on this subject. Where can they get your books? So if they want to contact me, and by the way, people contact me all the time with help on cases, and I still help a lot of people, a lot of them for free, not everyone. You would go to my website, which is arsonprofiler.com. Dot com, and my books are all on that site. Some of the books are textbooky. Some of them are, are all true stories based on my cases and a few of my friends. What I want people to know about arson, it's not simple. The arsonists are everybody. There is no profile for an arsonist. Everybody can commit arsons. The one thing that defies race, gender, and age, the one crime that really defies race, gender, and age, there is no, there is no profile of an arsonist. Now, there are certain, there's a lot of similar traits among serial arsonists that, that we look at. But, but to say this person fits the profile of an arsonist, well, we all do at some point or another. So it's sort of a, a laughable thing. And that's what I want people to take away. Most of what they learned in the past just isn't true. And unfortunately, Smokey the Bear lied to you for 50 years. <laughs> Cigarettes usually do not start wildfires. They just, they, it's a physical impossibility in most cases. <laughs> Forest Service has changed that campaign, thankfully. But, I mean, that that's historically uh, investigators like me are fighting those sort of biases when we yes. go to court or do investigations. Well, listeners, you heard it directly from Ed Nordskog. You can contact him directly, and his website is www.arsonprofiler.com. Is that right, Ed? Yes. Ed has invited you to contact him directly if you have any questions on his books, on his work, or even if you have questions about an arson case. So once again, Ed, we'd like to thank you very much for joining us today. And for my listeners, please take a moment to go to my website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, and subscribe to the podcast by clicking on the subscribe button. It's free and it's easy to do so. And by subscribing, you can listen to the past 202 episodes, peruse my book, read my blog post, 
send me an email or leave a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.